Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie. And it's that time of year again. Easter, or Resurrection Day, if you prefer, is upon us. If you're a Christian, you already know what Easter is about, even if you've never heard of a holiday named Easter or Resurrection Sunday, because it's all about the resurrection of Jesus. And you can't be saved without knowing about and believing in Jesus bodily resurrection from the dead. That's right. And that's why we celebrate Easter. It commemorates the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's also why Christians worship on Sunday instead of Saturday, as God's people did before Jesus's resurrection. Every Sunday is like a mini resurrection day, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves uh, because, as you know, there's no resurrection without a crucifixion. Jesus had to lay down his life before he could take it up again. He suffered so much for us. So tonight, that's what we want to talk about. Jesus's suffering or passion, as it's sometimes called, and his death, burial, and resurrection. And if you'd like to grab your Bible and follow along, we're going to start off by reading a passage that's probably familiar to most of us, Isaiah 53. Michelle? Right. This is Isaiah 53, starting at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief." When his soul makes offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Wow, what a beautiful, beautiful passage describing Christ as the suffering servant. 
You know, most of us have read the Bible's account of the crucifixion, but let's refresh our memories. You can read about the crucifixion in all four Gospels, and we encourage you to do that. But here's an abbreviated version of the Matthew 27 account. Pilate said to them, the crowds, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe upon him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And when they had crucified him, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Wow. Yeah, you know, in, in the same way that a verbal description of something like abortion doesn't really capture the horror of the act the way a video can, our English words used in Isaiah 53 and the gospel accounts of the crucifixion can't adequately express the extreme physical suffering that Christ endured on the cross. The cross was such an agonizing experience that we had to invent a whole new word for that kind of suffering, excruciating. Ex meaning out of and cruciare, the crucifixion, suffering drawn out of the cross. So how did Christ suffer physically? Well, Isaiah 53 verse 5 says that he was pierced, crushed, chastised, and wounded. Let's take a closer look at those words. Pierced. The Hebrew word here means to fatally wound or bore through. And we see this, you know, the boring aspect of it with the crown of thorns that bore through Jesus's head and the nails that pierced or bore through his hands and feet. Then we have crushed. And the Hebrew word here means to be broken, shattered, beat to pieces. Interestingly, it can also mean contrite. He was contrite for our iniquities. Chastisement. The Hebrew means discipline, as you would discipline a naughty child. And then finally, we have wounds and stripes. The Hebrew means a welt, blueness, bruise, or hurt. The flogging, the thorns, the pummeling he took from the soldiers, and carrying the cross to Calvary after all of that, nails through his wrists, nails through his feet, and the agony of trying to breathe. 
Jesus' physical body took some of the worst abuse that's ever been doled out by professional torturers. Listen in as Dr. David Acuna, a trauma surgeon from Wichita, Kansas, describes from a medical perspective what Jesus endured. Now, just a little warning, this shouldn't be too difficult for most listeners, but if you're extremely sensitive or squeamish, you may want to fast forward through this part. It's about six and a half minutes long, or you may at least want to not listen while you're driving. Yeah, I I believe that Christ's suffering uh, and the demonstration of the kind of, um, of physiologic stress that his human body was under uh, is manifested in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it's described that he was sweating blood. And there are there is a well-documented uh, medical condition in which patients who are under tremendous amount of uh, emotional stress and physiological stress can, in fact, uh, sweat blood because little blood vessels within the glands burst and then the blood is expressed. The, the, the scourge involved the use of a, a short whip with pieces of uh, typically metal, sometimes bone, sometimes pieces of porcelain wrapped in these leather straps, which is then utilized to, to come across uh, typically the back, the shoulders, the legs of the victim. Uh, and uh, the first few passes across a particular body part would tear through the skin, the fat, uh, but eventually, once the outer layers were were uh, torn away, it would start getting in the muscle and the tendon. And of course, along the way, you're ripping through all the blood vessels that supply all those tissues. And so you're losing blood the whole time. The plant that was described um, uh, actually had a very long thorn, um, not the little thorns that we would think from a rose bush. These were thorns that were uh, typically an inch and a half to two inches in length. The scalp is one of the most vascular portions of our bodies. It had a huge blood supply up there. So then having those thorns shoved down into the, you know, down onto the bony plate would have gone through all the scalp, which in and of itself would have created a huge amount of blood loss. Uh, I've seen people actually bleed to death from just a scalp injury. So uh, this is not a small injury to have, uh, who knows, dozens uh, of these things shoved into your scalp. And so that would have caused more blood loss. Typically when a victim has to uh, uh, carry the cross, what has been described uh, in the literature, in, in actual Roman literature, is they, they describe, the, they, they, they carry the crossbar. Uh, and the crossbar is estimated alone, was estimated to weigh about 110 pounds. And of course, if your arms are stuck out here, wrapped up on the cross crossbar, and you fall down, you need help getting up. You, you just can't get up on your own because there's no possible way without your arms to get up. So he would have needed help getting up. If he, fall, if he fell over, there's a good chance that he could have hit his chest, which, which then could account for the possibility of a cardiac injury. Anatomically, we consider the wrists as part of the hand. And so uh, with the placement of the nails between the radius and the ulna at that position, it, it still fits, fits the definition of being in the hand, and it's in a position in which the nail won't rip out, which you have to have, you have, to have a solid point of fixation. Uh, another interesting point about the placement of that is the median nerve goes right straight through that particular uh, 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 portion of the wrist, and so there would have been uh, either destruction of the nerve or, or impingement of the nerve that would have created a tremendous amount of pain 
so that every time you try to take a breath, you'd be, it'd be agonizing. You'd be pushing down on spiked feet, which of course hurt, and then you'd be hanging on spiked arms. And so you alternate from excruciating pain to excruciating pain every time you take a breath. So, so even if he survives the actual crucifixion, he would have had to survive what I believe to be a, a, a lethal injury from the spear just to find out whether he was alive or not. What's described is the loss of water and blood, and that would entail either the, the uh, uh, either pleural effusion or pericardial effusion, and the blood would have come from either pulmonary artery, a pulmonary vein, the aorta or vena cava, or the heart itself. None of those injuries, unless you're treated immediately by a trauma surgeon like myself, with all the advanced equipment that we have, would be survivable after even a few minutes. Christ, as the Son of God, could have survived anything. He chose to manifest himself as a human at that point in time and allowed himself to die. And, and being human at that point in time, he could not have survived this particular series of traumas. It's not possible. Um, Christ as God could have survived anything they threw at him. And, but he chose to be Christ, the human, at that point in time to die for our sins. And that given that, that self-limitation of remaining to be human, he died. He did not survive the event. I... Uh, I'm profoundly impacted by it because I realized you know, the price that he paid was something I'm not, I would be, never be willing to do for probably anybody. It's very difficult for me to even sing songs about the cross, even in worship, because I truly do understand what he paid, the price that he paid. Well, Michelle, it is unbelievable what Jesus endured physically to die for our sins, but he also suffered for us in other ways during his life and death. Going back to Isaiah 53, verse 3 tells us he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus had loved ones die and friends betray him and turn their backs on him. He wasn't immune to the hurts of life. And verse 4 says, We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This phrase in verse 4 carries the idea that people thought Jesus had done things that so displeased God that God's punitive hand of judgment was upon his life. Of course, that wasn't true. Yet there were people who thought of him that way and treated him that way, at the cross certainly, but also to some extent during his life. And yes, that grieved him as the God who loved and wanted to save these people. But on the human side, well, we all know how that feels to be so misunderstood and misrepresented. Christ felt all those slings and arrows of the heart. Yeah, he did. And Isaiah 53, 3 also says, He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
We see this constantly in the Gospels. The The Pharisees were always trying to trick Jesus and trap him with, with difficult questions. They repeatedly accused him of, quote unquote, working on the Sabbath by healing people and picking grain and eating it and so on. They plotted against him. They tried to even stone him. Even at the end, you know, when he was on the cross, Scripture says they hurled insults at him. And why? These weren't just playground bullies picking on a random kid for no reason. They had a reason. And those insults the chief priests and scribes and elders hurled at Jesus in Matthew 27, 42 through 43 sum up that reason pretty neatly. It says, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus, Jesus was God. He was their Messiah. Yet these men didn't want to humble themselves and admit it and bow the knee to him. They looked Jesus in the eye, the God who loved them, created them, and breathed the breath of life into them and said, we will not have this king reign over us. They despised and rejected the core of who Jesus was, Savior, King, Son of God. Yeah. And Jesus suffered in other ways, too. Uh, Let's look at more of what Isaiah 53 says. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. His soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many. Those are just some of the verses. Christ carried our sin. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, First Peter 2.24 says. There's no way we could begin to even fathom what that was like for Christ to carry every single sin of billions of people in his body. But he didn't just have the weight of that sin on his shoulders. He also propitiated God's wrath toward every single one of those sins. God poured out the cup of his wrath for our sin, and Jesus drank every last drop of it. Jesus suffered tremendously, but he endured all of it from the moment of his birth to the moment of his death without ever sinning, not even once, not even in his thoughts or in the attitude of his heart. It's difficult to wrap our minds around all the ways Jesus suffered, and even more difficult still to comprehend that he never responded sinfully to his suffering. But perhaps the most baffling aspect of Jesus' suffering is that he willingly chose to endure it all for rebellious, thankless, undeserving sinners like you and me. To serve us, to purchase the salvation we could never earn, to live the life we could not live, to die the death we could not die, and to conquer the grave that for us was unconquerable. Amen. Let's take a look at that grave and and Jesus' burial in the Gospels. I'm primarily going to be reading from the account in Luke 23, 50 through 56, but Matthew 27 and John 19 add in a few extra details that I'll mention along the way. So Luke 23, 50 through 56. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, who was also a disciple of Jesus, Matthew tells us. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. 
This man went to Pilate, this man Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. They took it down, and then John tells us that Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And he, Joseph, rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away, Matthew says. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And then Matthew twenty-seven sixty-two through 66 says this, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Uh, I can hardly imagine what the disciples must have been thinking and going through after what, you know, when Jesus died and while he was in the tomb. I wonder what they were thinking because it surely doesn't seem like they were expecting Jesus to rise on the third day. Well, think about it. Matthew 26, 56 tells us that when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, all the disciples left him and fled. And except for Peter's subsequent denial of Jesus and John, who we know from John 19 was at the cross, we don't really hear anything about the disciples between Gethsemane and the resurrection. If there's somewhere nearby during Jesus's trials and scourging and crucifixion, the Bible doesn't really mention it. And who buried Jesus? Not his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, not any of the other eight disciples. It was two of his secret and most likely less intimate disciples, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, accompanied by a few of Jesus's women followers. Right. And it doesn't seem like they were expecting Jesus to rise. You know, any of those people were expecting him to rise either. Did did you catch what the Luke account said about the way Joseph... Joseph and Nicodemus buried him. It says Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. That's what it says. If if you're expecting a man, and that's what they saw when they looked at Jesus's physical body, a man, if you're expecting this man that you've just seen tortured to death over the better part of a day to get up and leave that tomb, you don't encumber him by wrapping him up tight. It says they bound him uh, and, and weighing him down with 75 pounds of spices. You know, you make it easy for him to get up. Maybe you cover him with a sheet or just treat the body with you know, a light dusting of the the myrrh and the aloes. Right. And the myrrh and aloes were for mitigating the decay of the body and the resulting odor. Jesus's body didn't need that. He wasn't going to be in the tomb long enough to decay. But Joseph and Nicodemus treated his body just like any other corpse that was going to stay buried. 
And another thing, those spices weren't cheap. The passage says Joseph was a wealthy man, but the Bible never says Nicodemus was wealthy. And even if, would he have spent his money on 75 pounds of the stuff if he thought that Jesus was just going to rise from the dead on the third day? And also, notice that last phrase, they bound Jesus's body in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. They were carrying out the exact same burial processes that they would have performed for any other Jew who had died and was going to stay dead. Resurrection was, you know, not on their radar. And we could say the same thing for the women who were at the burial. The text says, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. They not only watched Joseph and Nicodemus prepare Jesus's body for decay in the tomb, they went back home and prepared more spices and ointments to bring back after the Sabbath, uh, expecting Jesus's body to still be there and to need those additional spices and ointments. So it seems like none of Jesus's followers were expecting him to rise from the dead. Yeah, Amy, it, it almost seems as though Jesus's enemies, the chief priests and Pharisees, had his resurrection yeah. more at the forefront of their minds than his followers did. They go to Pilate on Saturday and demand that something be done to keep Jesus in the tomb. Of course, they didn't believe he was going to rise from the dead, but they remembered his words and they were afraid something was going to happen that would make it look like he had risen from the dead. They remembered his words and did everything they could to keep Jesus in. The disciples forgot his words and couldn't believe he was coming out. Yes. But... Jesus did not stay in that tomb. No, he did not, Michelle. Matthew 28, 1 through 10 tells us this. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Michelle, I wish we had the time to read all four of the gospel accounts of the resurrection. They each provide unique details of the story, and when you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, it makes for such a rich narrative. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, creator and ruler of the universe, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Prince of heaven, worshipped by angels, all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, worthy of all glory and honor and praise, did not consider these things as things to be grasped or held tightly to. 
But he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Born not into wealth, power, prestige, or position, not into a mansion or palace, but born to plain, simple, anonymous people. And in humility, for most of his years, he lived a plain, simple, anonymous life, resisting every temptation in thought, word, and deed, that he might become the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And in the fullness of time, he was despised and rejected by men. Subjected to a kangaroo court, he was tried and convicted for crimes that he did not commit and sentenced to death even death on a cross. Harsh, sinful men took Jesus out and smashed a crown of thorns down on his head. They mocked him and scorned him. They pulled his beard out. They pummeled him with their fists, and then they whipped him nearly to death. They laid a rough, splintery crossbeam across Jesus' bruised and bloodied shoulders and led him in humiliation through the streets of his beloved Jerusalem, outside the city gates, to be executed like a common criminal. These evil men used the very hands that Jesus himself had knit together in their mother's wombs to reach down, pick up hammers, and drive spikes through the wrists and feet of their Creator. And Jesus hung there on that cross for hours in excruciating pain to endure the just and righteous wrath of God toward our sin, to take the punishment that we deserve, and he did not. Later that day, while Mary mourned and the disciples scattered and Satan thought he had finally conquered the God he hated, they took Jesus' bloody, broken body down off the cross, laid him in a cold, dark, lonely cave, and rolled a stone across the opening. Friday, Saturday, but Jesus didn't stay there, did he? On that bright, beautiful first Easter Sunday, Jesus left behind the sting of the grave and the bonds of death, and he walked out of that tomb conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave forever, forever. And he did it for you, and he did it for me. So that if we repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus and all that he did to save us, we might stand before God faultless, forgiven, and free. Michelle, I could hear that story of what Jesus did to save me over and over for all eternity, and I'd never get tired of it. Christians never move past our need for hearing the gospel, young or old, newly saved or seasoned saint. We need the gospel. We need it because we forget. We forget that we are great sinners in need of a great Savior. We forget to slow down and pour out our gratitude and worship for the sacrifice of our beautiful Savior. We forget to bask in our wonder, our amazement at His glorious and triumphant resurrection. Dear listener, do you know this Jesus who died and rose again for you? Have you heard the gospel? You are a sinner. 
You were born in sin and rebellion against the holy God of the universe, and you've also willfully chosen to break his law. You've lied. You've wanted and taken things that didn't belong to you, which is coveting and stealing. You've lusted after someone, which Jesus said is committing adultery in your heart. You've been sinfully angry, which Jesus says is committing murder in your heart. You've dishonored your parents, you know, and that's only six of the Ten Commandments. James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So you are guilty of breaking all of God's law, and so am I. When you break the law, justice must be meted out, and the just punishment for rebellion against God is an eternity in hell, which all of us richly deserve. And you can take that eternal death sentence for your sin and serve it to yourself if you want to. But God, who is rich in mercy, has provided another way out, a better way out. He sent his son, Jesus, to earth to live a perfect, sinless life so he could take your death penalty for you, and that's just what he did on the cross. He died in your place. He took the punishment for your sin, and then he rose bodily from the grave on the third day afterward. If you want to be right with God, have your sins forgiven and stand clean before him now and when you die, get alone with God. Confess your sin and rebellion against him. Sorrowfully turn your heart and life away from sin and toward him, believing that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection paid for the penalty of your sin. Ask him to save you, and he will. And until next time, repent and believe the gospel and walk worthy.